Every story needs a hero, and every story needs a villain. Well, fucking finally, we got ourselves a new theme song. In case you were wondering what I've been doing for like the last couple weeks, no, it was not writing a new theme song. Life has been busy. Welcome back to Hero and the Villain. It's been a bit. I am Drew. I am your audio villain. Thank you so much for hitting play, following on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Yes, a new theme song constructed by yours truly. I wrote the original, and now we have souped up the original to include some chuggy chug chug. It was needed. Things have been busy the last few weeks since the last episode. Summertime, like I said in the last episode, I don't work on creativity when my apartment's humid or I could be out doing other things. This year, my priority was finishing life coaching school, which I have. I'm now done with life coaching school, and I'd like to thank the Journey folks for running such a tip-top ship. And now I venture fully on into the life coaching part of my life. Which means that this podcast also has to evolve. And that is what we're going to start doing. I love talking about shadow work. But there are many other topics within dark psychology, subculture. And now, as I'm venturing into life coaching, relationships and intimacy, things of that nature are something that very much interests me, and that is going to be my niche, if you will, when things really get rolling with life coaching. So we're going to be talking about some new things, not just about dark psychology. There will be more of that on the way, but episode nine, we covered how shadow work, uh, dating, love, we're all connected via what you need to work on in order to have success in love or why relationships were not working for you. The various situations that you found yourself in over and over. One topic that has to be discussed might be a bit outside of shadow work, of course. And that is people have this narrow scope of how relationships should be. Is there anything wrong with getting married and having one partner and only one partner forever? No. Is that something that works for you? And you are not only happy and faithful and passionately in love with them, but you never get bored by the idea of managing a household with the same person until death takes you. Then that is awesome. You're able to do that. And I completely congratulate you on finding what works for you. I am not here to shame that. I want to throw that out there. But as we covered in episode nine, if you have not listened to it yet, go back and listen to it right now. Hit stop, go listen to it, then come back to the rest of this episode. As we covered in episode nine, that perfect movie marriage is not the reality of it. Four out of every 10 marriages in the USA end within the first 
five years, six years or so. People say that's not true. They say that the statistics for that is dropping. It might be a little bit, but so are the amount of marriages actually happening. Less people are getting hitched nowadays. Fewer people are getting married, so why? Reasons? Well, here's something that caught my eye. Really great quote, marriage isn't about love. It's also an emotional transaction in 2021. 71% of Americans stated it's important for a man to be able to support his family and be a good partner. 32%, only 32 fucking percent, said the same thing about a woman as a wife and a partner. That's fucked up, America. So let me hit you with this. A Cornell University study proclaimed there is a large deficit in the supply of potential male spouses. With a lower-paying economy, it's made it difficult for women to find and to marry a stable partner within a modern man. Of course, I'm talking here with man and woman traditional relationships. Before we continue, we have to look at the history of the man-woman marriage from its traditional roots. Religion is, of course, at the heart of the ceremony, which more and more modern humans are rejecting this tradition of marriage, the standard Christian marriage. Humans were, until about 8,000 BC, mostly hunters and foragers all over the map. With the advent of farming and agriculture, slowly placing their lives around political roadmaps, property that was privatized, the beginnings of towns, and yes, the place women held in these societies, the population grew and the quality of life started to suffer. Now, as Christopher Ryan and Cecilda Jetha wrote in the book Sex at Dawn, several instances of evidence suggest our prehistoric ancestors lived in groups where the most mature individuals would have had several ongoing romantic or back then just sexual relationships at any given time. These were casual with meaning. They reinforced crucial social ties holding these highly interdependent communities together. Our ancestors and their, and their fierce egalitarianism not only encouraged sharing everything but made it borderline mandatory. Hoarding something like food was almost a crime. You shared food and water. Uh, women breastfed each other's children. The group welfare and the complete sense of tribe made these groups stronger. And for the past tens of thousands of years, adult homo sapiens had several sexual relationships at once with rituals of mutual sharing with zero shame until religion fucked it all up. Once agriculture separated everything and people wanted everyone to know this is my land and my farm and people grew attached to commandments that told ye to don't covet your neighbor's house or wife, women were pushed into the number two slot out of a man and woman relationship ever since then. Women went from being equal to men as hunters and foragers in the tribes to another possession for a man to earn and defend along with his land, his cows, his house, and such. Which brings us back to the now.
people get so caught up with this notion that we have to find the one and that's all there is. All right. To the point where we sacrifice our own emotional and mental well-being trying to find the one. And if you don't believe that, you could probably hang out on your social media feed and probably see some people that that's all they obsess about is the one, the one, the one, the one, the one. It's something that's fed to us by media and movies and television. When I came across John Kim's work where he said, no, the one doesn't, isn't really a thing. The one is just the person that's in front of you right now. That can be taken away at any point in time. Ask anybody who's been married and divorced multiple times. Ask anybody who thought they found the one and that one cheated on them. Okay. So if you look at it from a different perspective, maybe the whole idea of finding the one and trying to subscribe to this idea of what a typical relationship should be when that typical relationship kind of spawned out of the whole idea that a person in a relationship was a possession, something to be had. Maybe it's time to tilt our heads a little bit and see things from a different perspective. What about alternative relationship lifestyles? Hmm? What do you know about those? Now, if you don't know much about them, and I said, what about having more than one partner? You'd probably think that meant, oh, that's an open relationship. Or, oh, that person's promiscuous and they sleep around. Well, if you don't know about them, the only way to know about them is to actually do your research. But thankfully, I got a microphone and I did it for you. So we're going to talk about a couple different relationship styles today for people that are not familiar with these ways of life, these ways of dating, these ways of approaching love and viewing partnership. So the three we're talking about today are people who prefer the polyamorous way of life, swingers, specifically for you know, married people, and relationship anarchy. Before we talk about the differences, let's talk about what they do have in common. One thing that hampers and typically destroys traditional marriage is the lack of trust and the lack of communication. When engaging in any of these alternatives to traditional marriage or partnership, the overwhelming theme of those I've talked to was the level of communication had to be a constant as it is how trust is kept bred and solidified. The relationship also has to be strong with this foundation set in stone. These alternative relationship lifestyles, or ARLs, as I might call them throughout this podcast, only can work and be sustainable if the foundation is strong. Don't go trying them if your marriage is an absolute trash pile. While yes, couples have improved their relationships with experimentation and eventually going one of these routes, it usually is after some counseling, lots of vulnerable, honest-as-fuck conversations, and a lot of fucking work. More so, you have to be in a really good place as an individual. Polyamory. First, it's not polygamy. That is having multiple wives or husbands. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way. They are different. 
polyamory is to have multiple intimate relationships, whether sexual or romantic, with the full knowledge and the consent of all parties involved. It's also not gender-specific. Also, if one is polyamorous, their partners don't need to be, but since those that are poly typically or hopefully are upfront with you about how they date, 99% of those people that I know are, with that they set the expectations. Those that date must check any jealousy they could harbor at the door, otherwise they won't sustain as a partner. And although it can involve married partners, it encompasses a wide range of relationships, both hetero and LBGTQ. With polyamory and swinging alike, more often than not is practiced privately, as at least one in four poly individuals say they have experienced shaming or discrimination or lots of judgment from friends and family. But many who identify as poly through and through reject shame as it is for them not just a lifestyle, but their relationship orientation to their core. It is who they are, though many also recognize it as it still is a choice that they make. Typically, this lifestyle works for those that enjoy a healthy social circle. They reject traditional methods of single-person commitment as they believe it is more than possible for one to have the capacity to love many at once. It should also be reviewed that the level of communication and consent is something that polyamorous folks and the BDSM community share in common in multitude of ways, aside from being grossly misunderstood by the general public. This is why it's common within one scene like BDSM. Many poly folks are participants of this glorious, wonderful pastime. A big part of the commonality is the level of negotiation. Elizabeth Sheff, PhD, and the author of the book, Stories from the Polycole, explains that folks in both ways of life spend a lot of time negotiating their needs and their wants to their partners. An immense amount of time on it. They both wish for enthusiastic participations of all involved to make sure everyone is kept happy and everyone's needs are met. Constant check-ins and dialogue almost functions as foreplay or courting. And like traditional relationships, over time, more work is made apparent as deeper emotions that are felt can bring deeper topics up, such as power exchange, possible breeding with a partner in a poly relationship. Those things, of course, need to be worked on. But having that foundation of solid communication and trust where you can get the smaller issues out of the way allows for those bigger topics to be talked about in a much more healthy capacity. Now, the next one we're going to jump on is Swingers. All right, it's not just a movie. that was made a long time ago. Here's an interesting thing about swinging. A lot of people think it came from the disco era. It did not. Want to know where swinging came from? Well... I'm sure you could trace anything back to medieval times. We're not going to go back that far. But in World War II, swapping partners actually helped form bonds between couples so that if one died in combat, the family would be looked after by one. No shit. Makes sense, though. You're married to somebody. You have married friends. Both husbands go off to fight. Well, I mean, what if one doesn't come back? 
All right. So, but that's kind of where the history of swinging technically started at. The terms can be defined as a couple that engages with other couples in either soft swap or hard swap experiences. Soft means everything but intercourse. Hard, of course, means they fuck. It's couple-centric, a.k.a. most people you play with are also swinging couples. It's been noted that there are around 12 million people currently compromising the swing scene in America, and around 6% of married couples polled consider themselves swingers, but like a lot of alternative relationship lifestyles, they conceal this from their friends and family, trying to uphold a public image. Typically, swingers do it together, and shun a partner going at it alone. We'll get to a little bit more of that in a, in a few. And they avoid any sort of feelings. They keep the encounters purely fun and sexual. Swinger state, you should never do this to save a marriage, by the way, which we talked about earlier. Like all alternative relationship lifestyles, it takes a lot of openness, trust, and one must have a lot of direct communication with the other. After all, you're fucking someone who is married to the person fucking your partner, right? Also, swingers typically avoid having multiple couples that they swing with. Many prefer to know the couples they swing with and try to keep it just as the two couples sort of working together, so to speak. Now, real quick, before we get to one of the final ones, there's kind of a sub... Let's say there's a sub-style that's related to those two. Tropels, a relationship between three people who all have unanimously agreed to be in a loving relationship with the consent of all involved, often referred to as a three-way relationship, a triad, or a closed triad. This is not an open relationship by traditional terms. If it's open, those in the tropel can have outside sex partners but not emotionally connected romantic partners. If it's closed then that is all off-limits, and you stick only with the three parties involved. And the tricky part is, an open tropel can be viewed as polyamory, as is an option of relationship anarchy as well. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait, backtrack, Drew, relationship anarchy. Explain that one. Here we go. Relationship anarchy, we know anarchy, what that kind of means. It's sort of the idea of no rules and going against the status quo 110% in fifth gear. It questions the idea that love is limited, that it can only be legit if it is kept in a single couple. It is about customizing your commitments with people around you and the terms, labels, and boundaries as needed. It is applying anarchist principles into intimate relationships. Though it floats nearby polyamorous island, it floats in an ocean with a unique set of waves, storms, and horizons all its own, as it can and will be different from practitioner to practitioner, so to speak. You can be married legally to one, have your own style as your spouse can have theirs. The partners you have aren't compared as they are all viewed as unique. You can have a primary but it is not required. There is no ranking system unless you want one. There is no idea of entitlement as you respect others' independence, and you don't get to exhibit a sense of control over another based on your history with them. Staying clear of entitlement keeps the process and the lifestyle 
truly mutual. As Andy Norgden states, love is not more real when people compromise for each other because it is a part of what's expected. I fucking love that line. Long story short, relationship anarchy really only has one rule. Mutual love communication and the creativity to roll with the ever-changing landscape of what you are choosing to do, who you are doing it with, and the grand mindset of there need not be rules unless that is a part of the expectations. One author looks at relationship anarchy like such. Your world is a city. You can build, move, tear down, change, alter, add, subtract, and construct the city in any way that works best for the city to prosper and sustain. And it can be completely different than the city that's up the highway from yours. You design your commitments, which generally means burning the idea of normal from the ground up. Relationship anarchy can be as normal and or free as you wish. And therein lies the creativity. It also needs to be stated that I know there's going to be some listeners that are going to hear these ways of viewing love as non-traditional, and they might get a little bit judgy, shall we say. I can tell you this. I know many people that are poly. I know quite a few swingers. I know some folks that are very near and dear to me that participate in relationship anarchy as well. And though, like any other relationship, it's not without its speed bumps and, you know, hard times. That's just how relationships are, no matter what the relationship style is. I know far more people who are not poly or swingers or in relationship anarchy that have gotten divorced or cheated on their spouses than folks that are in the swing scene or poly that have because of they know who they are and how they are and they don't deny it and they don't suppress it and they don't shove it down for the sake of the marriage thus building that resentment stuff that we talked about in episode 9, which once again, if you haven't listened to, you should go listen to it. Because they know as an individual who they are, it allows them to know their style and open to other styles, or they just know who they are and they don't suppress it. This is how I'm going to date. This is how I'm going to love. This is how I'm going to have sexual partners. And this is what works for me. Otherwise, if you suppress that stuff and try to just do the, the standard way of relationships, you're never going to be happy. I can tell you from my own experience, I spent years, years trying to subscribe to that. I was never happy. Because deep down, the idea of just dating one person didn't really excite me. It didn't really make sense to me because I've always thought that people can love more than one person. You love your friends. You love your family. You love baseball. You love your dog. You love 
pad thai, whatever. You love so much in your world. Why can't you love more than one person at a time? Who told you that that was wrong? Why do you still believe that? And why is the belief that that is the only way to love a standard? I am all for smashing any tradition out there that claims this is the way. If you're into science, you know that there should always be an eternal quest to find the next answer. Here is the answer we have now, but we're going to keep searching for the next best answer. Maybe there are multiple answers to a certain question. And I think when it comes to love, it's not fair to the emotion of love and passion to put it in a box. I wanted to do this episode to do right by the people I know that live these lifestyles. I wanted to do right by the people that adore these lifestyles, that it works for them, that also feel misunderstood. As much as I know, they could give a fuck less, but you also want to do a good representation of it. So hopefully I got to do that here. I believe in it. I believe that love is love. It shouldn't be confined to a box. Not at all. These relationship styles only ever truly work if you have a strong understanding of yourself. Unknown or unacknowledged by the masses, many folks with alternative relationship lifestyles, much like those in the BDSM community, use an open mind and various tools such as conversation, connection, deep thinking, meditation to peel layers of oneself back to find what works. It can involve much experimentation, trial and error, maybe a bit of stumbling to get on the path of what works best for you, like anything involving growth. But thinking there's only one way to do something that is already an extremely personal situation is a death nail to human evolution. We are insane creatures, immensely complex, and yet we're simple. We are curious by nature and can hold empathy for many and love for many. I will say this, the idea that somehow a God, if God exists or not, but hypothetically, if God does exist, why would God care how many people you love? If God is love, why would it matter to God if you love more than one person at once? That is a mind-boggling question. Love is love. Spread the love. Love many. There should be no rule against that. The answer, my friends, is we can. And if it is truly a part of you, then fuck the norm. Burn the normal down. Find out what love, passion, sex, lust, commitment all look like to you, no matter how unconventional it might appear to others. Because how you choose to date, love, have a partner, who you have partnership with, however many people you decide to have partnership with, it's not for others to decide. <laughs>